Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is master juggler, comedian, playwright, and co-founder of the world-renowned Flying Katamazov Brothers, Paul McGee. Paul perfected the art of street performance and juggled his way into a global touring sensation at a hit Broadway show. And now, your sexy boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. That means I must be sexy Phil Proctor, right? Just just by process of elimination, which is how I started my day. Oh, my <sighs> yeah, God. There we go. It's already down the toilet. <laughs> well, today we're talking with a, a very special guest who happens to be a long friend of mine. How long are you? Anyway, we've known one another for a long, long time and uh, spent a lot of time together in various places, which we can talk about a little bit later. But before we begin, Paul uh, Magid, Paul Magid, Paul Magid, we have to know how to pronounce your name. Paul Magid, Magid. I am a, I'm a member of the Magidim, the Magidim, storytellers. That's actually what my name means. Storytellers. Yeah, and, and you told me once what your uh, your name, and what would it be, in, in Sephardic or something? No, it's in, in Hebrew. In Hebrew, my real name, see, Paul is my the name that they gave me to protect me from the Christians. So uh-huh. uh, my real name is Peretz David Magid, which means the beloved storyteller who pushes through. I swear to God, that's what it means. Wow. <laughs> that's a pretty good name, huh? <laughs> that's what you do. Yeah. See, my name, Phil Proctor. Philippus means lover of horses, and uh, Proctor is a procurer. Proctoris, right? A <laughs> middleman. So I am a, I'm a procurer, procurer of horses. So very special, special sexual taste. <laughs> You're wanted in about eight states. <laughs> Paul, most people will know you as a founding member of the Flying Karamazov Brothers, the wonderful, incredible juggling troupe. Would you please explain about the, the brothers? Well, long ago, when Nixon was still president of the United States, and we were still at war in Vietnam, uh, my partner, Howard Patterson, and I uh, were going to school at UC Santa Cruz. That's the University of California at Santa Cruz. And uh, we kind of didn't really like each other at first, (laughs) although his father helped take the door off my dorm room a doorway because I couldn't remove in my sofa from my grandfather. So I met him sort of that way. And then um, we had the same girlfriend for a while, um, which is, you know, Santa Cruz kind of a thing. <laughs> then Howard, maybe from the girlfriend, we're not certain, maybe it was a doorknob, got mononucleosis and uh, had to not be in school for a while because he was just so ill. And he couldn't do anything but eat, sleep and juggle. So so goes the story, and so he had he just spent time juggling, and he learned a few tricks, and um, he had some friends from L.A. who were had showed him a couple of juggling tricks, and he came back he could do a few tricks, and I saw him doing them, and I went, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So um, we started juggling and learning tricks, and next thing you know, we were passing, um, and I was in theater. 
uh, at the University of California, and I was in a bunch of plays, and Howard and I started inventing this whole world of, of juggling. You know, we didn't know anybody really who had any system. We didn't go to school for juggling or anything. We invented our entire system. We completely invented. Hmm. And uh, anyway, we had a couple of really cool things that we thought were pretty neat. We had a, like a, a body v- uh, ballad from uh, Elizabethan England, um, Tales to Purge Melancholy, I think it was from. And hmm. um, it was Tom Tinker's My True Love. Uh, was our first bit, and which is a very body little Elizabethan song, and we did it while uh, singing it and juggling and throwing uh, balls back and forth between each other uh, on certain beats, and we've kind of been doing that ever since. Um, but anyway, that's how it got started, and then I think we opened for a play I was in. It was a uh, a Commedia dell'arte play, The Servant of Two Masters. You probably know that one. Oh, yeah. Um, by Goldone, and, um, or Goldoni, I think. And uh, we got a better reception than the play did, which, of course, was not very hard. Um, and we thought, hey, there's something here. And then the next thing you know, we were, you know, juggling at the beginnings of plays, actually. We mostly, that's how we got started, was opening for plays. And wow. then uh, we also went to a renaissance fair in agora which you guys probably remember that mm-hmm. wasn't that where we met yeah yes. Firesign theater performed our shakespearean parody uh, anything you want to or uh shakespeare's lost comedy in its initial form which was waiting for the count of monte cristo or something like it all right or him whatever <laughs> those titles and we saw you guys doing your your juggling act that's right. And immediately fell in love with you, fell on the ground, actually you laughing. <laughs> and we became friends then and have been friends ever since. It's yeah. Amazing. So Howard and I went to one in 1973 in the spring and we put out a hat and, or actually we just took off our hats. I think we weren't even thinking about making money and people put money in it. And we went, wait a minute. Ah. You can like have fun doing silly stuff and make money at the same time. Bingo! That's the game. The light <laughs> went on, and it's been downhill ever since. Uh, was it always called the Flying Caramazzo Brothers? No, actually, uh, no. Uh, Howard and I came up with a bunch of different names, which never stuck. There was uh, Snout and Glib. I was snout, of course, <laughs> for obvious reasons, which you can't see on the radio. Uh, and it was Muck and Meyer, but it's spelled nice. differently than you might think. Various names like that, but none of them ever took. There was Patterson and McGee, I think, and a lot of controversy about whose name should go first. So, you know, we started doing it as a duo, and we, in fact, came up with an hour-long show Um and I just found the poster for that. I've been going through my things, as one is wont to do when you start getting towards seven decades of age. Um, <laughs> because who knows? <laughs> you don't want to leave a mess for somebody else. Um, and I found the first poster to our first show. And uh, wow. yeah, it's pretty. it was pretty cool. And, and so we did these at various colleges at... at Santa Cruz, you know, Santa Cruz is divided up into different colleges, kind of on the Oxford, Cambridge kind of 
way. Ah. So we came up with this hour-long show, and it was a huge hit. And it was, you know, we just wrote all this sort of stuff and realized that we had a knack for comedy. And that's what we kind of realized. I mean, I always realized from the beginning that what we were doing was not a juggling act. It was, yeah. you know, it was really comedy and theater kind of mixed together. You could say it was an act in a juggler vein, couldn't you? Ooh, I might just slice that at the juggler vein. No, <laughs> <laughs> so it was your roommate that started juggling when he had mononucleosis. What? What? Well, actually, he lived across the hall from me. Oh, oh I see. So he was a neighbor, ah. a neighbor who had mononucleosis and started <laughs> juggling. So how did you get interested in juggling? Well, we both had learned to juggle beforehand. So I was a, ten a varsity tennis player. And when you're waiting around for a match, because, you know, there's more people than there are courts available, you've got a can with three balls in it mm -hmm. and lots of time on your hands. And if you're <laughs> like me, you go, hmm, I think I, I remember seeing a juggler when I was like eight or nine. And this guy, it seemed like he juggled 20 things. Of course, I know he didn't, but it seemed like it was, you know, he did the impossible. So anyway, I figured that out by myself. And Howard, I think, started on, on Walnuts down in L.A. He, he was from, he's from uh, North, North Hollywood. I don't know if they call it North Hollywood anymore. Now it's NoHo. NoHo. NoHo and No Hope. <laughs> so we both knew the basic way to make juggling happen with three two hands and three balls but we hadn't learned any tricks or anything and so yeah we just got obsessed and actually there was kind of a movement that went through the all the campuses in, in america at that point of people learning how to juggle it was a very strange thing only we huh. kind of took it to a much farther extent we got very obsessed we started doing eight hours of rehearsal or practice a day of juggling and and coming wow. up with all these theories about it and how it would work and then thinking about it in musical terms. Like Howard wasn't so much seeing the juggling as he was hearing the juggling. Hmm. Howard Howard is technically blind. You know, he had these huge thick glasses, which he doesn't have anymore because he has. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so, you know, he was, he was definitely your typical Jewish, you know, shtetl, you know, book bookish kind of guy a blind juggler well not te he was you know what do you call it? legally blind still but with his glasses he could see yeah um that's fascinating because juggling is eye to hand coordination yes, yeah but juggling as we discovered is really just another form of music right it's all about rhythm and symmetry and there's all these patterns that are you can actually write them out as um, numbers hmm. and equations. In fact, lots of jugglers tend to be scientists and mathematicians and musicians hmm. huh. because it's all kind of the same stuff. And that's something we realized right away, especially Howard realized it because he really uh, was someone who saw the or heard the world more than he saw it in many ways. Um, Did he play and, any instruments? Oh, he played lots of instruments. Yeah, he's he's quite a brass player. He his his main horn was the euphonium or baritone horn, but he's also a trombonist, and he played in sackbutt, if you know what that is. And I don't know if I can use that term on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> I played clarinet and saxophone. Um, so we. You know, especially Howard saw things in musical in musical terms. You you integrated music into your act. Well, did that start with the two of you? Yes, immediately. 
Then later you did an extraordinary percussive juggling using special uh, pins, uh, the juggling pins that you invented, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, we have many, many different kinds of percussive things. And we also actually make music while juggling. We play yep. We play box two-part invention in D minor on a marimba while juggling with each of us being one of the other hand, you know, left hand and the right hand. Um, and play it note for note. For people who haven't seen it, you're bouncing the balls off of the marimba. We're juggling wooden mallets that we had turned at a shop in in uh, Ireland many years ago. Oh. And then we have like rubber around the mallets and they had to be a certain weight um, because in order to be precise while juggling over marimba, we had to invent this whole method to make it work out because you're playing a lot of different notes very quickly with both hands mm. and you have to move back and forth over the marimba and the mallets have to have a certain kind of heaviness to them in order to control them properly yeah we started uh, exploring making music while playing on a marimba and we started off with simple things like playing a blues pattern and improvising off the blues pattern you know, because, you know, you're just, you can see through your pattern. I mean, there's so many things about juggling if you want to talk about it. But, you know, um, mm -hmm. juggling is something that you have to have many intelligences, as they say, in order to accomplish it. And then if you push it farther, like doing musical juggling, um, you have to have even more. And uh, which is to say that you have to like work on, you're doing many different things at the same time. Right, like we have a bit with the marimba, which is a, a the stupid end of of the marimba juggling, but the most complicated and difficult one, um, which is of course what most stu the finest stupid things are the most difficult things to do, <laughs> and this is where we uh, sing "I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles," while in harmony while uh, juggling over marimba and playing the uh, tune in harmony on the marimba tap dancing <laughs> and wow. we wear funny hats on our heads with bells on them and then we're playing yeah. the the bells in different rhythms while we're doing all of this um and we're chewing gum of course and then we end up by playing harmonicas while we're doing a very difficult tap number and continuing to play and juggle over the marimba. How much rehearsal was involved in that? Oh my god, that was one of the most embarrassing things ever. Right, you like throw the marimba mallet and hit a note and hit, you know, try to do the, the tap thing. And, you know, at first it just seems like this is so stupid. I hope nobody's watching me. I, you know, it's never going to happen. And then, like, weeks later, suddenly it's all coming together. I never thought of juggling being a, uh, well, certainly mathematical makes sense, but to do it by ear as much as by sight, obviously it's all timing. I would like to dip a little into the juggling thing. The history of juggling culturally, how long it's been around, probably since the beginning of time, right? Certainly since there's been um, mass agriculture. Um, there are the earliest known images of people juggling are, on Egypt, are Egyptian ones, like from 4,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, and there's some beautiful Etruscan paintings of people juggling. Um, so I think it's been around quite a while, obviously. I think probably even older than that. Uh, there's certainly no cave paintings of jugglers, but I wouldn't be surprised if you were like sitting around waiting for, you know, 
on the mammoth hunt, waiting for the mammoth to come by, and you've got like see a couple of rocks there, three clubs in your hands, or something like that. Oh, you know? yeah, clubs, right? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's been around for a long time. It's something that really primates pay a lot of attention to. We've we've done some experiments with going to zoos and juggling for the animals, oh. and primates are just they all react very differently one from the other, like gibbons think it is the most incredible thing that they have ever seen and when you <laughs> juggle for the gibbons they all come flying out of their branches and hang in front of the cage you know like this going oh my god do you see that i want to do that i want to learn that i want to figure out how that works <laughs> i've got to know because their whole thing is spatial and flying you know it's like it's just amazing to them and then chimpanzees are really funny not bonobos, but chimpanzees are funny because the female chimpanzees think it's the best thing since sliced bread. They just are like, wow, look at that. That's incredible. But the guys go, who the hell are these guys? Those are my women. And they generally go back into their caves and pull, come out with lots of shit and throw it at you. <laughs> Yeah, kind of like your audience going to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The more difficult shows weren't far from that. That's true. I remember a really difficult show once. We were playing for um, Hot Tuna. Do you remember those guys? Sure. Where was that? It was uh, in uh, Bimbo's in San Francisco. I don't know if you guys remember that place. Bimbo's 365 or something like that. But um, we went on, and the, obviously the audience didn't want to have anything to do with anything but Hot Tuna. And we went on, and the crowd was, I've never, I mean, it was like, we were going to die. I thought we were going to die. <laughs> they were, like, screaming at us and threatening us, like, why are you doing this, you know? Basically. Oh, no. That was a tough crowd. How does that affect your concentration when people are threatening you? Well, it, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. Juggling is a great thing for being able to concentrate under almost any circumstance. It's it really, you know, one of the other things about juggling, I know we're kind of rambling here, but is that um, it really teaches you how to control time hmm. and slow it down, actually slow down time. And, you know, because time is really just a perception in many ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anyone who's gone and been in a terrible accident and watched time slow down suddenly um, can tell you uh, it's really, and in juggling, things are going much faster, especially when you're passing with people, much faster than you could think, right? You can't consciously think about it. You have to, you know, in a way you can because you slow down time in a, in a certain way so that you can actually deal with the things coming at speed. When you guys are looking at what we're doing, what the Karamazas are doing, for instance, from the audience point of view, it seems really fast and all the stuff's going on. But when you're inside it, it's really slow. Hmm. Really? Yeah. It's very interesting that way. And, uh, you know, especially if you're like on some sort of, you know, like window pane or something like that. Um, <laughs> well, no, that, that, <laughs> not that I've ever had any, but if, if I had had some... <laughs> yeah. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. So stick around for some more amazing stories from the magical Paul Magid of the Flying Karamazov Brothers. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Shows, go to SexyBoomerShow.com. 
Tell your friends about The Sexy Boomer Show and help us build our audience. To be notified when a new episode is posted, press the subscribe button in your podcast player. And if you'd like to toss something in the tip jar to boost our show, look for the donate button on our website, sexyboomershow.com. Any amount is greatly appreciated, and for 20 bucks, we'll send you an attractive Sexy Boomer Show bumper sticker designed to help you get lucky. Back to Phil and Ted and their special guest, juggler, comedian, playwright, and co-founder of the world-renowned Flying Karamazov Brothers, Paul McGee. Okay, we're back again to hear some more amazing stories from the mind and heart of Paul Magid, the co-founder of America's greatest juggling act ever, the Flying Karamazov Brothers. There was a video I watched on YouTube of one of your performances where there were five of you, mm. and you were moving uh, like in a star formation in and out of each other as you were juggling all amongst yourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. I couldn't even imagine how you did that. Well, again, it's all about, it's music. So one of the things we do is we write these things down often on music paper, right? So we've developed a kind of notation to be able to write juggling pieces so that anyone could learn them, right? And you can just read it down on a piece of paper and know what you're wow. supposed to do wow. and when you're supposed to do it. And then, of course, the real trick is getting everything so everybody is all what we call synced up, so we're all in exactly the same time, and we're throwing at the same moment. Because um, And the funny thing about mm -hmm. juggling, like compared to magic, you know, for instance, you know, magic is really about, you know, trying to deceive somebody, basically, right? Like, it's 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 a lot of skill, but it's the skill of, you know, uh, misdirection of misdirection and making people to look where you want them to look when you are doing whatever it is you're doing in the, to make the magic trick happen. Whereas in juggling, you want everybody to see everything you're doing, right? Hmm. And they still can't believe it, even though. And that's uh -huh. why my, the first play I ever wrote, which was in 1976 was a play for all these street people that, you know, uh, vaudevillians basically is what we called ourselves. New vaudevillians, new wave vaudevillians. Um, it was called Everything You're About to See is Actually Happening because that was the whole point of it was like we really want you to understand and see what we're actually able to accomplish and it's kind of in a way real magic happening before your eyes. And that's I think part of it. Probably the primal pleasure you get out of watching juggling. When you said you get the, the cues going between the, all of you to get into syncopation, how do you do that? Do you do like a, a verbal cue or something to get into sync? Uh, well, no, we all can, you can hear it. So, you know, you want everybody's right hand to be moving at the same time as everybody else's right hand and also with your left hand and then you can hear the beat right and if somebody's off it, it won't go it all it'll all sound like one note if you're all in sync if mm -hmm. you are slightly off you'll hear there's a like a stutter in the pattern um and you can see visually that all the right hands are moving at the same time and the left hands are moving at the same time. You can hear the slap of the club against, or the ball against your hand. Um, so you have all these various clues about what's going on 
in order for you to be in, in, in a synchronous situation with everybody else. And then one of the important things that you need to do also is be able to look through your pattern, right? So you're looking at everybody else. You're not actually looking at what you're doing. And so mm. most people think you'd be like you're having you're watching mm. yourself juggling because you know how else could you do it? In fact, you never are looking at your hands or, at all when you're doing it professionally. You're looking at everybody else, especially when you're mm. an ensemble group like we are. And that's I mean we mostly do ensemble juggling. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that with singular jugglers when they're like juggling three balls, for example, they're not looking at their hands; they're looking sort of straight ahead. Yeah, or slightly up a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. The important information is when the ball is losing its energy and is cresting at the top, right, uh -huh. uh, of the arc, and then is about to come down. That's when uh -huh. you throw the next object. If you had objects that when you caught them, they made a musical tone, you could do a Philip Glass composition. We have done things like that. So um, mm -hmm. we've done many, many things. We've, done, we've played with many orchestras, most of the biggest orchestras in the country we've played with. Mm. Um, and we have three different orchestra shows. And the orchestras really get what it is that we're doing. That's really fun. And in fact, when we do that piece with the uh, marimba, um, the, the two-part invention, the Bach two-part invention, that we don't ever tell them that we're going to do that. They don't watch us. We never rehearse it in front of them. And when we do it, the, it's the orchestra, not so much the audience, but the orchestra is just like going, oh my <laughs> God, I can't believe they're actually doing that. So, And then we usually get you know the biggest ovations from them. <laughs> is this an orchestra of chimpanzees? <laughs> no, don't or, call them that. They're union no. chimpanzees. <laughs> <laughs> so far you've been talking about uh, Patterson and you and how you evolved the act. But mm. when, when I saw you guys working, I've seen you working over the years in various iterations, and mm. it did get up to what five guys who were doing it. How did how did that evolve? First, it was Howard and I, and then um, I thought we should expand it. And uh, I thought the best actor in the world was my friend Randy Nelson, who's mm -hmm. also known as the blonde guy. He's incredibly blonde, and he's an amazing performer, a wonderful artist. And he didn't hmm. know how to juggle at all. <laughs> oh, my God. But um, <laughs> he learned on the street. Uh, we actually got him involved in 1974 when we went on our worldwide tour of, which turned out to be going to Spokane, Washington for the 74 uh, World's Fair. And which is where we got our name, by the way. It was, uh, while we were uh, hitchhiking, that's how we got around in the early years. Was we yeah. hitchhiked. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Trying to get the gigs on time, hitchhiking. Back then, it was almost plausible. Uh, <laughs> anyway, one of the rides we got, our last ride before we got to Spokane to the World's Fair, which is the biggest gig we'd ever done at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't have a real name yet. You know, we had the, the ones I told you about, but not one that included Randy, really. Um, and yeah. So we were looking, scan, you know, scanning around for a name. And while we were uh, hitchhiking, we got. Uh, picked up by two very pretty young women. Um, one was uh, Mary Sullivan, who turned out to be the niece of Ed Sullivan. And we oh thought, my oh my God, wow. this is like so portentous. This is means this means something. <laughs> and 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 she had um, come 
west with her friend Mona Poga, a Latvian, um, to look for core to get Coors beer, which you couldn't get out on the East Coast at that time. Um, <laughs> so they were on you know a pilgrimage for Coors beer, which is hard to imagine at yeah. this point. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, we got a ride with those guys, and we were like, "Oh man, this is great!" You know, and we were kind of like hoping something was going to happen. But the girls weren't having, you know, weren't really that interested in a bunch of slovenly jugglers like us. Uh, so we slept out in a field of corn um, just before we got to Spokane. And we were like, oh, we got to come up with a name. And Howard was reading the Brothers Karamazov at that time. I had read it beforehand. And I thought, oh, yeah, that would be great. You know, the characters from that book are kind of like, you know, tragic comic characters. And I thought we could be sort of the other side of that, you know, and it would be kind of a funny thing to call it the Flying Karamazov Brothers, you know, sort of this tragic comic, you know, circus act. Um, and so that's how I got my name. I'm I'm Dimitri and and Randy was Alyosha, you know, the very uh, religious, serious one. And uh, Howard was the intellectual one, Yvonne. Um, and... Then when uh, Tim joined the next year, he really joined as, he was a juggler. We'd never met another juggler really like that serious. And he Hmm. had juggling clubs. We didn't know at the time when we met Tim that you could juggle things other than things that were incredibly dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) We, We really hadn't thought about juggling clubs. We were juggling knives and sickles and, you know, that was like part of our act was, and torches. That was, you know, basically anything that was like really, painful and could really hurt you badly that was that's what made a juggling <laughs> act this is when, you know, our, when we were 18 right we thought and i think i was talking to you ted yesterday about how it was very important to us that you could get really badly hurt by the juggling equipment if you know they ha- everything had to be really sharp very sharp uh, just like you and and of course you were and again you were going for the juggler but it had, it, had, <laughs> it was the juggler in your neck and you it often happened yes for. I mean, we did get cut quite seriously. Really? When I watched your juggling of the sickle, I thought, well, they must be dull sickles, or they must be... I think at that point they were dull because we realized no one really cared. <laughs> Except you. It was only us who really cared. <laughs> so when you're juggling knives, sharp knives and sharp sickles, there is a real danger there. I mean, did you ever have a, a mishap? Yeah, Um when uh, we were doing, we bought these sh- handmade knives, unbelievably sharp knives. And knives are not the easiest thing to juggle because the handle is the heavy part, right? And you really, to make the flip yeah. happen, the heavy part has to be at the end because you don't want to catch them by the sharp end, obviously, to get them to work for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we were doing this show, a street show, and we were juggling these incredibly sharp knives and passing them. And one of them, unfortunately, landed erroneously in my hand and cut the hell out of me. Um, And blood was splurting everywhere. And the audience just thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen because there was so much blood, it had to be fake. (laughs) That's when I realized that that's a certain part of show business that's really interesting. Like when disaster happens, like like when Lincoln got shot, you know, was that part of the play? Yeah. You know, they mm. they didn't know, right? And I remember one time I was at the, we were doing Comedy of Errors at the Vivian Beaumont 
on Broadway. And um, one of the parts of the show was to come sliding down this rope um, on a eight ring, which is a mountaineering piece of equipment. And I had been a mountain climber in my youth. And um, so I was quite familiar with it, but the lighting, the way the lighting is at the Vivian Beaumont, it wasn't made really to be a theater so much as like a, you know, an exhibition hall or something. So I was coming down the line, but in order to get through all this lighting, I developed this technique of throwing the line and jumping at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a little bit dangerous. And so I threw the line... (laughs) And I had a you know a glove on one hand as, as you were sliding down the rope. You didn't want to have your bare hands, right? And I jumped out of the you know where up the, up there in the rigging, jumped out of my seat, and all of a sudden my hand slipped out of the wristband that was going around my hand in order to kill, hold me on the eight ring, and I was suddenly in midair. Ooh. And me and the tech guy both had you know, thirty feet uh, in in the air, and me and the oh. tech guy. Both looked at each other and had the same feeling that it was like, uh, what's his name, Wiley Coyote, yeah. you know, when he comes runs off the cliff, yeah. and he like for a second goes, whoa, uh oh, you know, <laughs> and oh, no. I swear to God that's exactly what happened. And the tech guy later told me it's exact. He had the same sensation. I but I went, oh shit, and then <laughs> went flying down. You fell thirty feet. Well, I fell 30 feet and I grabbed the rope about 10 feet down because I'm, you know, be able to, when you can change time a little bit or deal with time a little bit, you can think. And so um, I grabbed the rope, but I burned my hands really bad. You probably can't see it here, but skin was hanging down from my hands. But anyway, I hit the ground um, with my, my posterior and my shoulder and my back of my head, which I still have a big dent in my head from it. Jeez. Um, Wow. But I was still conscious, and the whole cast, this is the moment in Comedy of Errors by Shakespeare where the Antiphili, who are exact twins, are suddenly revealed to each other. Been look, you know, people have been having all these you know, uh, funny encounters with whom they thought were the same person. In fact, we're different twins with different you know, backgrounds. Um, and this is the moment the twins are revealed to each other. And so the whole cast is on stage, like 20 other people, and they all have their back to me when I come down the line, right? And so normally they heard, boom, you know, just as I touched the ground. This time they heard nothing, and then bang! Wow, (laughs) my God. And uh, Howard, my partner, who was the other Antiphila, Antiphilo, Antiphilus, turned around and saw me lying there with my eyes up in my sockets and um and i kind of looked at howard and said am i all right and howard went yes and i still had 10 minutes of the show to do and uh i got up and i did it wow now that's show business okay wow that's commitment oh man and i had to juggle with skin hanging from my (laughs) fingers it was terrible oh my god so it's a dangerous job what can i tell you However, you have to say, the name of the play was The Comedy of Errors. And I just think you went too far. <laughs> and I did. You can still see that show on, on you know, it was shot on PBS for uh, great performances. And yeah. so you can you can go on YouTube or something and see it. Not only did you become master jugglers, but 
then you took it to a whole new level with the playwriting aspect of it. Yeah. That's what made you unique. Yeah, well, we were the first people to actually, you know, uh, the vaudeville, uh, the vaudevillians, the first people to make it to Broadway. We first played Broadway in 1983 at what was then called the Ritz Theater, which is now called the Walter Kerr. Um, and, yeah, that was absolutely amazing. How did this happen for you? Did you have management? We did have management. We had management, but it wasn't really that. It was that um, we had gotten asked to do ABC's uh, Winter on Ice or whatever. They had an ice show every year. Um, And the guy who was the producer for that was a guy named Mace Newfeld. You ever heard of him? Sure, of course. And... And he also had written for, I think, uh, Ed Sullivan. And he, I mean, he'd been a comedy writer kind of guy. But he was a you know, hard-bitten producer at that point. Um, but he, he totally related to what we were doing. You know, we were like guys f- like him, f- you know, from like the Depression, you know, when there was still vaudeville. And we were yeah. doing it, kind of doing the same thing. Only we, instead of a seven-minute act, we were doing two hours. Um, wow. Anyway, so we did this show for ABC, and we were on, like, a little stage on the ice. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> it was completely ridiculous. Jugglers on ice. Um, <laughs> I looked for another play. Anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he was he got real excited and wanted to put us on Broadway. You had a champion. We did, yeah. You know, understood what you were doing and helped you realize that dream. I think that's yeah, wonderful. That's what and happened. Look, look you, you, again, because your career has been so extensive and, and, and has gone through so many extraordinary, unique changes, but you're still doing it, right? You just did a performance in Hilton Head. Yeah, I just did. I, mean, I think I'm one of the oldest... I'm trying to find out if I am the oldest professional juggler left in the you know in the world. Um, I, I I imagine there probably is somebody older than me, but I'm you know I'm right at the edge there. If I'm not the oldest, I'm right at the edge. But what I just yeah I just did a show. Caramont, you know, all our shows of course got canceled our tour from uh, from COVID, yeah. except for one. It was in South Carolina because they don't care in South Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) So about three months ago, my agent calls up and says, so where's the rooming list? And I go, Jeff, what are you talking about? He says, you know, for the show. And I go, there are no shows. What are you talking about? What rooming list? He says, the show in South Carolina. I said, they're all canceled. He said, no, they never canceled. (laughs) Right? These shows get booked like a year and a half, two years in advance. Yeah. This show was booked before COVID hit. I think in January of 2020 (laughs) and they had never canceled the show. And so we had to go do it. And I hadn't done a show really in almost two years. And so I was like going, am I, you know, I'm 67. Am I going to be able to do this? And what I learned was I didn't even break a sweat. It was like no problem. I had so much fun, except for the fact that nobody in the audience was wearing a mask. But besides that, you know, um, it was it was great. It was actually great for all of us who were doing it because none of us had done anything live like that in so long. And it's, you always wonder, well, can I actually still do it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, um, I'm still doing it. 
But anyway, you, I think the original question was, how did we get to five? And the answer is that we started making it kind of big in 1980. We were actually doing a show at Chicago Fest on Navy Pier in Chicago with Henny Youngman. Oh, and, oh I loved it. We, fought, we were after Henny Youngman. So every day before our show, we'd go and watch The Master at work. Oh. And he was like a machine gun. Yeah. Just just had them rolling in the aisles. And it was just one joke after the other. It was incredible. Um, anyway, so while we were there, we got noticed by somebody at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. And they came, they told their higher-ups about it, and they came and watched us when we were playing, at, if you can believe this, at the other end, which was also the, the bitter end at that point, but the other end cafe sure. in New York, which is a very famous place. Only it wasn't made for juggling. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> tiny place. So we had to do half the show off the stage. Um, so we did this show and uh, people from the OB committee came and, you know, people from the Goodman Theater. And suddenly all these theater people showed, people showed up and we, got an, we won an OB from doing the show there. The shortest wow. run, the farthest off Broadway is what we said. Um, and uh, we started, and the Goodman Theater made an offer for us to come and play the Goodman Theater. And we did, and we were a huge hit. And we started playing regional theaters starting in 1981, basically. And But at that point, Randy, um, who has always been a computer person, f kind of first and foremost, mm -hmm. um, and had worked at Atari with with uh, Steve Jobs as a fellow employee of Atari. No kidding. Um, yeah. Wow. He, um, you know, basically decided to, uh, he got married and decided that being on the road wasn't for him. And he, of course, had this great other job. So he started working um, at, uh, I think it was Next Computers at that point, or mm -hmm. you know, I mean, maybe Apple and then Next. I can't remember. And then he went to work. And then he came back. So anyway, so when he left, um, this other guy who was from Seattle, Sam Williams, who was a very funny young man, um, and really wanted to be in the group, um, joined the group in 1981. And then when we were about to go to Broadway, we had done this run at, um, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and got this incredible New York Times review, just like hmm. one of those reviews you just like, oh, oh my God, I won't get many of these in my life. <laughs> Which is really kind of all it takes to launch. Back then it did. Was the Broadway show really what put you on the map in a big way? Yeah. Yeah, the Broadway show. I mean, we've been we've been doing regional theaters, and we were kind of on the map. But the Broadway show definitely was like, yeah, you know, the thing that put us in the big time. Well, Paul, thank you so much for uh, juggling your schedule to be here on such short notice. Sure, absolutely fascinating. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul. Love you very much, and always will. Right, bye. Bye. There was one evening when the flying caramels have showed up on my street here in, uh, in front of this house that I'm in right now in Benedict Canyon in a school bus because they were touring the state and they needed a place to stay. So I invited them up 
into the house, and, and I think there was four of them at the time, and they all found places to, to sleep. They tried to teach me how to juggle, and it failed terribly, although I still have the balls that they left me with. But I didn't have the balls to learn it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, Phil, another great show. You know, I, I've known Paul for uh, decades and decades, and I learned more today about juggling uh, from him than I thought was possible. Yeah. The insights that he gave us about the musical aspect of it was just mind-boggling to me. I'm so glad we had a chance to talk to him about that. And it started in a college dorm. Yeah, that's right. So many things did. And, uh, of course, I never caught... I caught mononucleosis, a, a, a very light case, uh, from a doorknob, just like, like he did. But, uh, unfortunately, not from a girlfriend. Because we were in an all-male all school. You could only catch it from a doorknob back in the 60s. That was the only upside of getting mononucleosis in sixth grade. They're like, wow, did you, who's your girlfriend? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Thank you once again for listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer, Boomer Show. Show. And send, send money. money. So long. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Paul McGee co-founder of the Flying Karamazov Brothers. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm A. Ernest Guy. Stay tuned for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man.